Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Pastor Derek. I want to welcome you to Connect and so glad that you're in church today as we continue our series, The Problem of God. How many have been here for more than one week? You've been here for the at least one week of the series. Great. Good, good, good. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to get right into it um, really, really quickly, but I do want to uh, first off um, talk about Easter real quick with you guys. Um, I know it was mentioned in Connect News, but I just like to put a little on top of that. Um, I don't know if it kind of connects sometimes, but first of all, we have created uh, seven worship experiences, believe it or not, for Easter. This is the first time we've ever done um, that many. We've added two year over year because we have a new location. In fact, I would love it if we would just take a moment to welcome all our online, but in particular, our Framingham campus. Can we give them a big hand over there? Yes. All of them serving faithfully, and you know there are uh, hundreds of people over there, believe it or not, already. Is that crazy? And that's just crazy. We just started. So we're doing two worship experiences on Easter in Jesus' name. And um, we're having five here at the Ashland location. And so um, one of the cool parts about that is if you have family activities on Easter Sunday, you can come to church on Saturday. So Easter at Connect starts on the, on the weekend, on Saturday. So we have two experiences um, on Saturday that everybody can come, either location, and then we have two in Framingham, and three, the, uh, the normal times here on that Sunday morning coming up, uh, the Lord's, you know, you know just the, the celebrating a risen Savior, the Lord's Day, coming up this Sunday. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about quickly was something that I already know the answer, and I hope I get an enthusiastic, you know, response to this, but how many of y'all love your church? Okay, 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 thank you very much, that was good, that was good. I didn't have to poke you too much. So if you, we always say if anything you love shows, right? So if, it, if you love it, then it shows. And one of the ways that it can show is actually on Easter because you can give away. I always say Christianity is like breathing. You take it in, you breathe, you, you inhale, and then you exhale. You give it away. And so one of the best times to give away what you say you love, and that is, is your church, is on Easter. You're never going to get a higher response to an invitation than on Easter, hands down, it is statistically a proven fact. So I would just ask you, don't answer this out loud, have you invited anybody? And if you haven't, get some invitations out there. We have resources for you to do so. You can do so many different things. You can use our invite cards if that helps you. You can, um, you can send people a message from YouTube or a website. Um, you know, you can just talk to somebody, <laughs> text them, call them. You can use our Facebook event page and invite people. There are a lot of mechanisms to do it. We try to make it as easy as possible. And so you don't have to know what I know necessarily, and I'm not saying I know more than all, all as my wife would say, all y'all, but when it comes to like kind of sharing your faith, let's partner up. You might not feel as confident as I do, but I don't know your friends. And I love to meet them. And so if we could just partner up, you can invite your friends, and I'll make sure that we present something that is predictable. In other words, you know it's going to be relevant. You know it's going to be um, it's going to touch a felt need. You know it's going to be biblical, and we're going to make sure it's also powerful as well. And so that's, that's our guarantee. That's our promise to you. But we're asking you to partner with us by inviting people to church um, next Sunday. And if you invite somebody... And you add this little element. If you say, which service would you like to come to? I want to go with you to that service. You'll get an even higher percentage yes. 
And if you add this breakfast, brunch, or lunch connected to that, I'll just say for the male population, that works really, really well. Because the way to a man's heart is through his... Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay? And, and then you guys can dress however you want next week. Um, I was raised to wear our Sunday best on Easter. And so I'm going to be wearing the nicest jeans that I have next week. <laughs> All right? So I just want you to know that they'll probably be holy um, because those are always more expensive when there's less material. Praise the Lord. Yeah, it's true, right? It's true. So we're in this series entitled The Problem of God. Everybody say The Problem of God. Now, some people see... God, maybe not you so much, maybe there's some people in here that are kind of in the seeker mode, but some people see God as the solution. I personally have come to the conclusion that God is the solution to a lot of my problems, but some people have problems with God, and we um, based a series on a book written by uh, Mark Clark. It's called The Problem of God. He was a skeptic, an atheist. Uh, I would say he was an honest atheist or an honest skeptic because he leaned into his skepticism, he doubted his doubts, and he continued to pursue and ask questions, and in the process, came to the conclusion that uh, God was real, uh, that God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ, became a Christ follower, ultimately a pastor, and he pastors a megachurch in Vancouver, Canada. Fantastic book, and in the process of uh, doing the research and developing um, the material for this book, he polled uh, thousands of people and determined that there were 10 kind of top problems that people have with God. We're not going to do all 10, but we've kind of addressed uh, half a dozen or so of those. I might actually add another one to the series. Um, which I'll announce probably next week. But um, we've been kind of unpacking those. And so in week one, we dealt with the problem of God's existence. Um, it's kind of more of a, um, an evidential kind of message. This particular message, will tag team on that. Um, week two, we dealt with evil and suffering and came to the realization that a lot of our um, personal convictions were motivated by private pain, that we've had pain. And if we're honest, that's affecting or it's kind of, we're, we're looking through the, a dirty windshield. We're looking through um, um, uh, the, at the world through our pain. And then last week, we dealt with the problem of hypocrisy. How many were here last week for that? I highly recommend if you weren't that you listen to that because honestly, that was not only solving kind of a problem or addressing a problem, but it was sort of a cultural message of connect. There's a particular text there that I teach on at least once a year from John chapter 8, dealing with a woman caught in the act of adultery. And so I just want you to see how we, how we deal with people who are caught, who are busted, who make mistakes, who fall short, who, who have human frailties. And I just think it's good for you as a church person to know what our response should be to people who um, are to our own sin. Uh, and how we want to be responded to. But today we're going to deal with the problem of science. Everybody say science. He blinded me with science. It's a song, never mind. Some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about. So listen, I've got 32 minutes, 14 seconds to teach you all things related to science and God. Can you all extend your hands towards me? Gosh, I need, you know what I need? I need a Chuck Norris anointing. Do you know what that means? I mean, Chuck Norris, when he watches 60 minutes, he can do it in 20 minutes. Okay, I mean, he, he, he's got a special anointing when it comes to time. He climbed Mount Everest in 15 minutes. In 14 of it, he built a snowman on the bottom of Mount Everest. I mean, he's on top of things, right? And so when Chuck Norris and time had a race, Chuck won, and time is still running out. 
That's good. That's good. Okay, anyway, we'll move on. All right. So here's, here's some kind of review of some presuppositions that we have kind of established uh, in this series, and that is that we all have a belief system. Whoever's listening online, you're listening in this room, we all have a belief system. Of course, Christians, we know, have a belief system, but atheists have a belief system. We established that. Agnostics have a belief system. Spiritualists have a belief system. Maybe you made up your own homemade religion. That's a belief system. If you say, I don't have a belief system, that's a belief system. Everybody, everybody has a belief system. What's interesting is it permeates your decisions, and I would, just, and I would say also it influences, or we attempt to influence other people with our belief system. Point in case. And I'm going to talk fast. I'm going to go at the speed of light. This is Chuck Norris anointing the whole time. In this book, Pastor Mark talks about, uh, he, he references a story of a nurse in a hospital. It was a male nurse. Male nurse had a Christian worldview, was a Christian. And uh, apparently, you know, different times would say certain things. And so uh, what happened is his, his um, counterpart said, whenever we're in the operating room, don't bring your beliefs into the operating room. Okay, fine. And so what happened one day was um, they were in the operating room. A patient died on the table. It's very sad, semi, you know, kind of morbid situation. The presiding physician, in an attempt to assuage the, you know, the, the emotion and the difficulty, made a statement that we all have heard, might have even used. You've seen this at funerals. You've seen this in sensitive scenarios. And the presiding physician said, at least he's not suffering anymore. Anybody ever heard a phrase like that before? And this nurse, this Christian nurse, thought to himself, wait a minute, I can't, believe, I can't bring my beliefs into the operating room, but you just brought yours into the operating room. In other words, behind that statement is a certain belief system. He was thinking while the physician was saying this, how do you know he or she is not suffering anymore? What, in fact, is that based on? It's based on certain beliefs that we have. How do you know that consciousness continues or doesn't continue? So you don't even have to be a Christian today to subscribe to the fact that consciousness, in some cases, people believe this, continues after they die. If you were to study what is called the multiverse theory, in other words, um, many people believe that there's the universe, it's expanding, it's kind of flat, but there are multiverses connected to that. And so you just go from this life into the next life in terms of your consciousness. Einstein actually believed that, to give you an idea of a very smart person that believes something like that. The point is, there's different views on things. If you were a person who've heard of this, uh, very few probably experienced this, but there's some people who've had near death or back, you know, death back to life experiences. Has anybody heard of stories like that before? What's interesting in those stories is all of the the reports from those people who've had those experiences, they're not all positive. Some of them are scared to death by that experience. So for this doctor to say, at least he's not suffering anymore, that had a certain belief to it that was permeating everybody that was in that environment. Does that track with everybody out there? So why am I going through this? Because here's the thing. As we kind of go forward, I want, I want you to remember the principle Follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. Not where you hope it leads. Because some of us, we're gunning for a certain belief system. If you're an atheist, you're gunning for that. You know what I mean by gunning? I mean, like you're, like, you're behind that. If you're a Christian, you're gunning for that. I'm just saying, use your brain, follow where the evidence leads, and be honest. Don't just follow where you hope it leads. 
And, and when it comes to the sciences, which is such a huge subject, and there's many ologies, biology, cosmology, astrology, astronomy, all these different things, there are these widely held perceptions, because this is kind of like today's message is the problem of science in contrast with religion or deism, we, uh, excuse me, theism. And so I want to deal with some of these wildly held perceptions as we kind of begin to unpack this subject. The first one is that Christianity Christianity is anti-intellectual. Anti-intellectual. This is, this is uh, held by people even in the church. Certain church leaders, quote-unquote thought leaders. Um, what's interesting before I even get into this, that every misperception has a, a basis in reality. You know, to the perceiver, perception is truth. But it was based on something that happened. Okay, something happened. So I can introduce you to church leaders or thought leaders who are very anti-intellectual. And I've been around many of them over the course of my life. I actually believe to be anti-intellectual is to be anti-Christian, though. Because God gave you a brain. All right? And he wants us to engage our brain. God was never asking us to check our brains, and just, it's all heart. God wants to see a heart and head connection. He wants you to be, personally, I'm a Christian today because of objective evidence meeting subjective experience. I've had both. What do I mean? Behind those two things, behind subjective experience is a who, and behind objective evidence is a what, or some of the why. Does that make sense? God wants those two things to intersect to create a relationship with him. And so, I, you know, you don't have to check your brain at the door. In fact, when you look at history, you can see that the university, the idea of a university is a 12th century Christian invention. Schools like Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, are these pretty nice schools, by the way? Princeton and Brown all began in the 12th century as Christian institutions, okay? And so higher learning and and faith and the pursuit of faith are not uncoupled, they're connected. They're always meant to be connected. And so historically, there's a rich tradition of learning, of the study of philosophy, of the study of, it's a big word, but epistemology. It basically means you have a justified belief that, is, that has prim, prim, primacy or it's super, superimposed on opinion. And so man for many, many centuries, would engage the brain as well as engage their faith and their heart in the process. In fact, Jesus gives us some good advice that sometimes we don't take from Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. He says, love God with your heart, with your soul, but also with your, with your minds, with your minds, with your noggin. That's my paraphrase of that particular text. Love God with your heart, your soul, and your noggin, your noggin. It's not funny in the third service. Let it be noted. Okay, so <laughs> tough, tough crowd. Here's, here's another widely held misperception or perception, and that science is, is objective and faith is subjective. Okay, this isn't true either. Nothing could be further from the truth, and we'll talk on this kind of in different ways today, but if we look at evolution or evolutionary theory, which is widely taught, widely accepted, Currently, right now, right now in this town and the surrounding towns being taught in, at the high school level, um, evolution is, um, uh, is a theory that attempts to explain observable but sometimes unrepeatable data. Evolution 
tries to explain things that we can see, but it can't repeat the things that it's tr- trying to explain that it's seen. And when I was in um, middle school, um, we would have, I used to love science in middle school, and then I don't know what happened. Girls came into my world, and I didn't care about school anymore. Um, <laughs> But I remember 6th and 7th grade, somewhere around there, having different experiments. I was trying to think of one that, that I could do in here that hopefully wouldn't flop and fail. But I can remember, and hopefully this works in the name of Jesus' work. Um, but I can remember having certain experiments that we do, whether it be like creating little tornadoes or volcanoes and things like that. That's what I really wanted to do, but there was no time for this. But I remember this one. Uh, you would take some soda water, and of course I used flavored soda water because if this doesn't go well, I'm going to drink it. Um, and then we would, take, we would take raisins, and we would drop them in the soda water, and what they would do is they would dance. And in the name of Jesus, they will begin to do that. Let's just see. See, they're going to go to the surface. Uh, here they come. Come on, buddy. In the name of Jesus, <laughs> you worked in the early service. So in theory, they'll come, they'll come. In theory, what happens is within the kind of nooks and crannies and crevices of the raisins, the carbon dioxide in there, ta-da, and then they go back down. And so what happens is they get to the surface, the carbon dioxide explodes on the surface, then the weight of the raisin takes it back down, and normally they're dancing a little bit more feverishly, but this probably is not the best soda water in here. So you, you get the point, though, right? You get the point, Okay. All right, so here's the point of that point, all right, is that we can have these experiments, and they are observable, but they are also repeatable, right? So the best science is observable and, and also repeatable, but you can't repeat the Big Bang. It, it might be observable um, through fossil records in the Precambrian era where all of a sudden all this fossil record shows up or it might, it might be observable because we can see the universe is continuing to expand and all of that is t- typically happening. But to try to explain something that is observable but not repeatable is a lot more difficult. That, rec- that has a subjectivity to it, not just an objectivity to it. So the data is objective, but the explanation becomes subjective because it's not repeatable. Does that make sense to everybody that's in the room right now? I'm trying to do a good job with this, okay? So any scientist worth their weight knows that there's wiggle room to those experiments that are not repeatable. It has to become subjective. So to say that science is objective and faith is not is not true. Science also has subjective qualities to that as well. So if I, here's a, here's a third one. If I believe in science, I can't believe in God. Now this is what's happened to a lot of people. This is, what, uh, this is where a lot of potential Christians um, got squashed in their spiritual journey. It's killed a lot of them. You got into high school in particular or maybe even to college. And what happens is for the first time in your life, you're interested. You want to inquire and learn more about um, the origin of man. You want to learn more about the stars in the universe. You want to learn more about biology and things like that. And in the process, you encounter somebody who is well-versed, um, uh, well-educated, way beyond you, and you are not capable, because of the principles of influence, of engaging adequately at that particular time, and yet you're being filled with a particular point of view all the way to doctrine. That happens in the church, but it also happens in, in schools and, and in education. Is everybody tracking with me? And so as a result, 
you might have encountered a professor, a teacher, read a book, uh, did a deep search, <laughs> deep search on Google, you know, you know, reddit.com and you recently saw some trend out there on X, Y, or Z and, and, and as a result, it affected you to the point where you believed science and faith are on the opposite ends of the pool and nothing could be further from the truth. And, and it became something where it was always uh, science versus faith. And, and, and if you were a lawyer, and I'm, and I'm not, I like to lawyer up once in a while, but I'm not a lawyer, but that particular term, versus, is a Latin term. And sometimes it's misinterpreted in law, but I would submit to you it's also misinterpreted in theology. In law, when, if you were to say, and now presenting Jones versus Smith into the courtroom, that the appropriate definition of that word verse, versus is and. Jones and Smith. And what happens is we've made these things po polar opposites or antagonistic, but the reality is it's not, it's not science and faith. It's not science versus faith. It's science and faith. Does that make sense, everybody? We've made them antagonistic with one another in the process. And so I believe, <coughs> excuse me, my voice is, I'm going to go into puberty here at any moment. <laughs> I'm so young, it just takes me back. Um, that's what happens. Anyway, sorry about that. But science actually can lead researchers toward faith, not away from faith. And people sometimes see it, it's the opposite. No, if you really do the research, if you really dig in, science can bring you closer to God in the process. But that's not what I heard when I was growing up. I heard if, if you're going to be true to science, nobody in your community believes that in the science community. That's just pie in the sky or you're just making things up. Listen to this now. It, amongst scientists, there are organizations, communities that they collect um, themselves within, and there's one called the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It's a huge community among scientists. 2009, they did a poll. Thanks, buddy. And um, so, an American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now, within this particular poll, this is what they discovered among scientists. Look at this. 51% of scientists believe in some form of deity or higher power. That's not what you would think, though, is it? No, of course not. Now listen, within the hard sciences, you know, if you will look at to, to look at, uh, in particular, the evidential sciences, when you're looking at the stars in the universe, or you're looking at macro or microbiology, you're looking at the human genome and mapping of the human body, in those particular sciences, it's way higher. It's almost in 70%. We could, we could insert almost 65 to 70% in here within the hard sciences. Within the social sciences, the number's much lower. So when you start getting into psychology, evolutionary theory, and things like that, they're pulled away. Why? Because man is interpreting the situation in the social sciences, but man is being honest, and God's evidence is influencing them in the hard sciences. Does that make sense? But if you merge those two together, it's still 51%. 51% there. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Now look at this. 31% believe in a personal God, not just a higher power. It's not just a he, she, or it. No, they believe in a personal moral force behind in the metaphysics of the world today. Interestingly enough, the minority, which speaks the loudest, this is the atheists and the agnostics, say, I really don't even know. I'm not really sure. And so isn't it interesting that 
this is not really a religious thing. This is, this is their own poll of their own community, and these are the hard facts and statistics. So, bottom line is, fact-based science is not perpetually at war with faith-based religion. Interesting. But that's not what we conclude when we listen to sometimes mainstream communication. Pick your environment for that. And so it doesn't have to be science or faith. It can be science and faith, as we've stated earlier. So science and faith don't have to be at war. But science has some limits to it. There are some limits to science, and we talked about this in the first week. We basically said that physics can't explain metaphysics. Physics are dealing with the laws of the universe. Metaphysics are above that or outside of that. It's, it's dealing with the why or the who created those laws. How did they come to be? That's metaphysics. Hard sciences cannot um, deal with those. Those should be reserved more for philosophy and, and theology, perhaps, to unpack those. As a result, when you're dealing with a major theory like the Big Bang Theory, it poses as much of a challenge to, the, to atheism as it does to Christianity because it cannot answer the questions of who or why. Is everybody enjoying this except me? I feel like I'm in like, I'm, I'm learning some stuff right here, okay? So this is pretty cool. So, and I'm just trying to show you without even having to use the Bible, and we will, when you just engage your brain, there's some contradiction, there's some, there's some issues, there's some things there's not answers for that will make you draw different conclusions than what we commonly think or what the widely held perceptions are. Now, Stephen Gould, uh, he is an evolutionary biologist from Harvard, he said this, and he's talking to scientists, basically saying, wake up, we cannot use nature for our moral instruction or for answering any questions within the magisterium of religion. See, he's separating philosophy, religion from hard sciences, and he's saying to say it for my colleagues, and for the umpteenth millionth time, it's like he's talking to teenagers. <laughs> he's saying science simply cannot adjudicate, just that, that word judge is inside there, judge the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. Now, he's not saying he believes in the superintendence of God on nature. He's just saying, I neither can affirm or deny it, we simply cannot comment on it as a scientist. That's what he's saying here. So to the problem of science doesn't need to be a problem. Science just needs to get out of the way, in essence, okay? And so he was an honest scientist who knew physics can't answer metaphysical questions. Leave that to the philosophers and the theologians. All right, now this next guy is a successor. This quote I'm going to show you is a successor to Edwin Hubble. Now, some of you guys are familiar with the Hubble telescope. The Hubble, te yes, please tell me a few of you are. All right, I'm really in trouble if we don't have that. All right, the Hubble telescope influenced um, the world and the, the viewing of, you know, just, just of the stars and cosmology and astronomy and astrology, all those things majorly impacted by this technological breakthrough. Edwin Hubble was the kind of catalyst for that. His successor, because Edwin Hubble died in the 1950s, his successor, Alan Rex Sandage, is considered uh, probably one of the greatest, um, you know, thought leaders in our world today. He said this. He said... Um, what did he say? He said, it's my science that drove me to conclude that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. So in other words, as he's looking through this telescope, day in and day out, seeing things that nobody has the privilege to see in this room, he basically is like, 
my science cannot answer some of the things. I got to stay out of that. That, that. that is reserved for something greater than me. In fact, when he got to be 50 years old, at 50 years old, by just doing that week in, week out, doing it day in, day out, he came to the conclusion that there has to be a God and that the person, uh, personal manifestation of that God was Jesus Christ, and he became a Christian. Uh, and he's one of the most respected scientists in the world today. So as a result, science shouldn't kill our, our, our theological curiosity. It should actually spark it. If we are skeptics who lean into our skepticism, doubters who doubt our doubts, if we're actually pure scientists, it should spark our curiosity, not kill it in the process. Amen? So here, evolutionary theory suggests that religion is an aberration, something we invented to help us out. This was my daddy's position as a converted atheist, but before he was converted, he looked at Christianity and said, that's good for you. That helps you keep on doing it, but really, it's an aberration. It is not normal. It's not normal. It's not, it's not, it's not sensible to believe something like that, and that's kind of the common view of anybody that holds a theism or theistic view of the world is, you know, we kind of, again, we're just like, you know, whatever you need to do, you know, whatever you need to lean on, whatever kind of crutch you have to hold on to, and as a result, uh, many of these Evolutionary theorists, they have to have their own filters for life. And they have four filters that they look through. So when, when you talk to an evolutionary theorist, the expression of that is what we call naturalism or determinism. And just, just go with me on this. I'll try to make it make sense. So naturalism has four filters that it looks through within the human experience. The first one of those four filters is feeding. In other words, I get up, I got to find food, all right? It's, it's all, it's survival of the fittest. And if your great, 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 great granddaddy found some food homesteading somewhere in this wide open world, and they came across something they killed and it was good to eat, they would gorge themselves because they never knew if they were going to have another meal after that. This is a naturalistic position. You better feed yourself. That's why we... On Friday nights, eat all the Dorito bag and the Haagen-Dazs because those instincts die hard, everybody. <laughs> that's what a naturalism would tell us. That's the excuse for these extremes, as it were, okay? And then kind of this progression, the next one is 4Fs, fleeing. Fleeing is this flight response. In other words... We were, we were, you know, all the way back to prehistoric times, all the way to today, humanity has to, like, protect itself, you know. I don't want to be the prey to the predator. And so that's why you have these, like, kind of, like, f flight responses and do everything I can to survive at all costs. It's a normal evolutionary response, a normal human psychology response. And then thirdly is fighting. This is where kill or be killed. I'm going to kill you before you kill me. You threaten me, I'm going to threaten you. I'm going to do whatever it takes to continue my life. And then the fourth F is reproducing. I don't know what you guys were thinking. The word there is fornication. The secular term for that is a little different, and so I had to desecularize that for this message today. So I don't know what you guys were thinking. You guys need to go to church more. I don't know what's going on right now out there anyway. All right, but, but this reproducing, okay? All right, and so what happens is uh, the, the focus is I got I to gotta feed, 
I got to make sure I can eat. I got to make sure that I don't, I'm not killed. I got to kill or be killed. I got to make sure I propagate. I continue. I move forward and, and do whatever I can to do that. So naturalism and determinism basically says this, that truth takes a, come on, where is it? Go back. Truth. It's not going. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. And here we go. There we go. Truth takes a backseat to survival. If you're a naturalist, if your view is naturalism or determinism, or you come out of this evolutionary theory, you're basically saying, I don't care. Uh, all I care about is eating. All I care about is surviving. All I care about is not dying. All I, you know, I don't care. And so whatever you're doing, religious thought, therefore, is just an aberration. It's a coping mechanism. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be okay for me. Now, if that's true, and I hope you guys are all with me right now. Everybody with me? I'm going somewhere with this. This next thought is critical because I didn't see this, honestly, until I started researching this particular point. Um, naturalism has a fatal flaw to it. And here's the fatal flaw in a nutshell, okay? Uh, naturalism is this. If, come on, what is it? It's going back when I take over here. Here we go. Naturalism flaw. If you can't trust your natural faculties to tell you the truth about God, then you can't trust your rational or natural faculties to tell you the truth about evolutionary theory either. In other words, how you get, you can't, the knife can't cut both ways. I mean, it does cut both ways. You can't say on one side of the equation, well, that can't be true. But then over here, oh, then why can you say this could be true? Make sense? It's a fatal flaw of naturalism. It's a logical contradiction. You can't have both at the same time. So um, even amongst atheists, they've said things that are related to this. An atheist named Mike Mitch Stokes, he said this. It's so crazy. It just keeps going backwards. It says this. It says, atheists have a reason to doubt whether evolution would result in cognitive faculties that produce true beliefs. Hmm. If so, then they have a reason to withhold judgment on the reliability of their cognitive faculties. And this ignorance would, if atheists are going to be consistent, spread to all of their other beliefs, including atheism and evolution. Atheists who believe the standard evolutionary story must reserve their judgment about whether any of their beliefs produced by these faculties are true. Believing in unguided evolution, that's talking about no God, the randomness of the universe comes built in with it ver the very own reason not to believe it. So the pure truth of evolutionary theory is you have to doubt. You have to doubt. So you can't doubt on one side and not doubt on the other side. Does that make sense? Everybody out there? And so you, you, know, you know there's a breakdown when the, the, the sponsor of evolutionary theory, Charles Darwin, doubts himself. Look at this. He says... Within me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of a man's mind, look at this, this is the origin of species is where he's talking about, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals are of any value at all trustworthy. So he's, that, that, that's his, he's saying, I'm having trouble believing my theory. Okay, so why do I tell you this? Because the debate is very real even among scientists. So to say the problem is science, I'm just saying scientists have problems amongst themselves. All right? And so there are, in addition to this, I like to answer questions with questions sometimes. 
Because a lot of times there are questions that are not easily answered. Some questions are going to take a lifetime. Some questions we're going to, God, only God can answer in heaven. Sometimes we, we'll pursue and we'll be able to find different answers. But let me give you three questions that the evolutionary theorists have not been able to answer up to this point. Here's the first one. How did non-living chemicals and elements become living cells? In other words, how did this non-living how did, how did we go, f- nothing produces something? Here's another one, follow-up. How did living cells randomly assemble into intelligent life forms? Take your pets, monkeys, people. How did we come from random mutations and assemblies and become intelligent beings? And this final question, this is what evolutionary theorists cannot answer. This final one blows my mind. How did blind and random chemistry create beings capable of intelligence, meaning, altruism, that's going out of your way to help rescue, save someone, and morality? We, we, we want to be moral. What put that in there? Where did that come from? We talked about a little bit of, of this in week one. Explain why you care, why you love, why you create art, why you'll be sacrificial, why you love, why would we do that? Why would someone step in harm's way when you know it could harm you? Why if you have two coats, you're thinking about how you can give one away? Why when you have extra money, would you want to give it to someone? Why when you see a woman, elderly woman struggling to get groceries in the car, do you want to pull over and help her out? Why would you even do that if it's survival of the fittest, if it's the, the four F's of naturalism? Does that make sense to everybody out there? And so those are questions they can't answer. And so, kind of final couple slides here, and then I'm going to show you a scripture. Even if everything science says, even if everything science says um, <clears throat> about evolution, the origin of the universe, and biology is accurate, there's, there's a ton inside there amongst themselves that they can't agree on, okay? But let's just say it's all accurate. None of it, based on what we said here before, none of it fatally defeats the existence of God. None of it. None of it. In fact, science may actually reveal for many, and it has within the scientific community, that God does exist, and there's a personal God when you look at the hard sciences. 31%, we said already, and within the hard sciences, it's even higher. So, the next thing that you kind of have to look at is, maybe God already answered the question. In other words, when you look at the Big Bang Theory, when it first came out, it first emerged, people wondered if it would drown our theology as Christ followers. And many people thought not necessarily because we always believe God pre-existed creation. It was atheists who said at one time the universe was eternal, but then later they said it's not eternal, there has to be something before it, but they have no answer for what that is. Fine, you don't have an answer for that. We do. We do, okay? Theologians for thousands and thousands of years have always believed in the God of creation. Ex, ex nihilo. It's Latin being, meaning something out of nothing. God produced something out of nothing. God predates creation. And so in Genesis chapter 1, in the, the first early Hebrew text, here's what comes out. In the beginning, what? God. In the beginning, God. Why? Who? Right there. That's the answer to the metaphysical question that nothing in the sciences can answer. Problems, the problem's answered, God. What did he do? He created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, interestingly enough, this is a personal, this is a personal entrance initiative from God. This isn't like just accidental and random and all that. Personal. The Spirit of God um, was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. By the way, it was good. It's not like cataclysmic. It wasn't 10 to the 138th power. It wasn't random. It wasn't accidental. It was, it was good. It was good. And this is why I think some of us wake up every day longing for it to be better. Because God put that in there. He put, he put eternity in the heart of man. There's, some, there's a hole, according to Ecclesiastes, that God put inside of us that can only be filled in a subjective experience in addition to an evidential or objective evidence of who God is. Does that make sense? And so then he went on and he said, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, (coughs) and there was morning the first day. Now this first day thing, man, I'd like to talk about this, but I can't talk about it very long, but people get all hung up on whether, you know, the earth was created in 24, a literal 24-hour day. If the whole thing was seven 24-hour days, people get so banged up about that. And I would just say this, that it could have been, but it might not have been. And I don't believe, if you believe one or the other, you're not a Christian. I think when you start digging into the original language, the Old Testament, this particular one, is, this text is written in Hebrew. The word day there, and I'm just going to park for a second, is the word yom, Y-O-M, yom. That particular word could mean many different things, and I don't think there's many Hebrew scholars in this room right now, um, but basically it could mean uh, it's a calendar day. It could mean um, it's a season. It could mean it's an eon, an epoch. Some of we don't even know what those words mean, um, but that's what it could mean. It could be metaphorical. Could be metaphorical. I don't know for sure, but some people are so bent. If you don't believe in a literal day theory, then you couldn't even be a Christian. I'm not sure that's the big point of the the Bible. It could it could be it'd be like me saying, you know, uh, I'm going to Logan Airport and it it takes forever to go to Logan Airport. Right? And so what do I does doesn't it almost take forever sometimes to go to Logan Airport, right? No, some of you are like, no, if it's forever, what are you doing here right now? I mean, what are you, an eternal being? You know, that's it. You're a liar. You know what I mean? You said it would take forever, and so I can't have anything to do with you because you said it takes forever. It does almost take forever. It's a metaphor. But see, people are going to battle over those kind of things, whether it's literal or not. So you might believe... The, the earth was created, you know, it's 6,000 years old, it's 10,000 years old, it's 13 billion years old. I'm just trying to get you to see, engage your brain. If It doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you believe one or the other out of that. Don't buy the lie that the entire Christian faith hangs on a couple of small words. What the entire Christian faith hangs on is the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole Bible hangs on. And don't forget it or miss the point in the process. Can I have an amen? So the right question, what's the right question? The right question is possibly this. What if the primary purpose of the scripture is not to show us how the universe was created, but to show us who and why? 
Because even if we completely understood the how, and I'm not saying you shouldn't try, we would always wonder who and why. You'd always wonder that. So my question to you is this. What about when it comes to you? Who's behind it all? Who's behind it all for you? Why? Why? That's really what this whole problem is boiled down to. And what I, what I like to do is I like to pray with you because we did pretty good in, in time talking about a massive subject and I hope I just started the ball rolling for you guys. Would you stand to your feet? I want to I pray for you about something. One of my favorite movies of all time, and this will seem sacrilegious but to some of you, but uh, I like to disperse all religious spirits out of the house. But um, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Matrix. And I remember the original movie, The Matrix, uh, Neo um, meets Morpheus. Anybody know what I'm talking about? If you're like, yeah, if I said, you know, what's, you know, Hezekiah 12, 2, you'd be like, oh, but if Matrix, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Hezekiah is not a scripture, but anyway, that was a test. Um, so Neo meets Morpheus, and this, there's this encounter, and basically what happens is they sit down in these two chairs, and Morpheus basically sets him up for this choice. And there's a blue pill, and there's a red pill. And the blue pill is you can go back, you take this, and you can go back to your old way, and you can believe what you want to believe. You can, you can live with the comfort and convenience that you've always had, but there'll always be something itching at you. There'll always The thing that you always recognized that was there that you couldn't describe, and you knew it was the matrix, That'll always be there, but you can take this pill. Or you can take this pill, and we can go down the rabbit hole and see where it leads. We can go and pers- But know this, and before you get ready to take it, he said, know this, I'm only, I'm only going to lead you to truth. I'm only going to show you truth. And I think there's a lot of Christians in the making, and there's a lot of Christians that don't go forward in their faith because they're going to take the blue pill, and they're going to ignore the red pill. We're comfortable with the way things are. We don't, we don't want to ask. To, I'm, I'm telling you as a Christian, lean in. Doubt your doubts. You can ask questions. It takes, our church is wired for you to have courageous conversations. I won't have all the answers. This is a challenge. Honestly, certain subjects, I am very confident. This is not one of them for me. This is one I've had to dig into to be a good pastor. But I'm just saying, you're in a safe place where we can dialogue about these things. But maybe you're here today and you've never, you've never come out of the matrix. See, Morpheus said, I want to free your mind. You're in bondage. You're in bondage, Neo. You're living a lie. See, so to think that you can do your life without God is to live a lie. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you a choice. Maybe you're here today, somehow, some way, maybe even listening online, I don't know. And you never heard it explained quite like that. And you did have a doubt about God's existence. You did have some hang-ups and some perceptions about him. And all of a sudden, scales coming off your eyes and your mind's opening up, and but when you really get down to what the primary question is, who is God to you, and why, why am I here? And you realize only God can answer that, and you want to encounter him, know him, and come into a personal relationship with him. And I would say to you, sir, man, boy, or girl, that's exactly why you are here right now. All of this led up to this moment, this intersection. There was a moment like this for my father 49 years ago where as an atheist, he bent his knee to Jesus Christ. There was a year like this for myself 35 years ago where I bent my knee to Jesus Christ. You can do that in figuratively in your seat. You can say yes to God and move in his direction. And if that's you and you're ready to do that, 
between me, you, and God, with every head bowed, every eye closed for the privacy of the person around you. Would you raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I want to make sure I have that. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you for your courage. Anybody else over there? Yes, I see your hand. See those two hands? Good night. So I don't miss it. I just want to miss Thank you, sir. Thank you for your courage. That's awesome. Thank you for your courage. You can put your hands down. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Church, would you pray this prayer? And those that raise your hand, would you say this prayer with me? You're saying it with your mouth, but you're believing it in your heart right now. Say, say this. Say, Jesus, I confess with my mouth, I believe in my heart that you are God. Manifest in the Son of God, Jesus, who loved me, who gave himself for me, who wants to be in a relationship with me, but you were waiting for me to say yes to God. And I say yes today. Come into my life. Be my Savior and be my Lord. And guide me and lead me into all truth. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that that prayer that they just prayed, something right now supernaturally happens in the heart of men and women in this room. They're never the same because they made a decision. And now, as a result, they can truly become a disciple and learn some stuff. But as soon as that they made that decision, I believe your word tells us that when one repents, that the veil, the scales come off their eyes. When someone repents, the times of refreshing can come. Lord, they've repented, and I pray that something supernatural happened in their life because of this decision as we talked about the problem of science we realized God was the solution to everything in Jesus name and everybody said amen and amen come on let's give the Lord a big hand clap for all those decisions God bless you guys for your attention come on Pastor Mark thank you